You know, I was looking this morning even at, at our decor here, and I, I got this thought that if you were an outsider and had never heard about Christianity or Jesus, you might look at, at the scene here and you might think it looks a little bit morbid. Because here we have a, a tomb and we have an instrument of torture on one side. And, and, and if you didn't understand the story of Jesus, you might wonder what form of death we're celebrating. And, and it just reminded me that often we need to know the details. We need to know the story. We need to know the heart behind these things. And I want to do that this morning. I want to share about the heart of our Savior, even as he prepared for the end of his life, as he prepared for death and everything that was involved with um, the death of, uh, his death on the cross. It's a little story that I came across that, that kind of reminds me of the heart of our Savior, and I just want to share that with you. The story is about some Scottish soldiers who were forced by their Japanese captors to labor on a jungle railroad. As they were laboring on this railroad here, they had, as a group of men, they had degenerated to very um, barbarous behavior. And one afternoon, something really tragic happened. A shovel went missing. The officer in charge became enraged. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. When nobody in the squadron budged, the officer got his gun and he threatened to kill them all on the spot. It was obvious that the officer meant what he said. Then finally, one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and he beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivors picked up the bloody corpse and they carried it with them to the second tool check. This time, no shovel was missing. Indeed, there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. This word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. Everybody was surprised that an innocent man had been willing to die to save the others. In the incident, the story says, had a profound effect, and the men in that camp from that point on begin to treat each other like brothers. Even later on, when the victorious allies swept in, the survivors who now resembled human skeletons because of their lack of nutrition, as they lined up in front of the very people that had captured them, instead of insisting that they be treated cruelly, they said, no more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. And I, I think of that story of a man who knew that he hadn't been guilty and yet was willing to step forward so that the rest of the party would be saved. And it, it reminds me of the heart of our Savior. In going to Calvary, going to the cross, giving himself for humanity, even though he was innocent, even though he should never have been condemned. We were the ones standing condemned. We were the ones in need of judgment. And Christ stepped forward, and he took our place. And as I was reflecting on that and thinking of the heart of our Savior, um, I was led to this portion again in John chapter 13, and I encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 13 
And I want, I want us to just look at, starting at verse 1 there, just to, to understand the heart of our Savior um, as, as he prepared for his final days on the earth and as he was preparing. It says in verse 1 there in John chapter 13, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew that he only had hours remaining on the earth. He knew that, that his death was imminent. And he had prepared his entire life for this. And remember last Sunday we talked about um, Jesus even in the previous chapter um, saying, what should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this very hour I've come, he said. Rather, Father, glorify your name. Jesus was willing to go through um, tragic results, um, difficult, difficult results for himself in order to redeem us. And so here in, in this passage here, it says, when he knew, when he knew that his hour was drawing really close, he loved his own who were in the world. It says he loved them to the very end, to the, to the last hour. Remember as he's hanging on the cross even, he, he makes the statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, he loved them to the very end. He loved his creation. As much as his creation had turned their back on him, he never lost his love for them. And I find it fascinating as I look at the heart of the Savior to know that he was already preparing his followers for his departure. And it, it kind of reminds me of, of people who are diagnosed with a terminal illness. I was reading a story a while ago about a, a, a young mom with, with three little children. And she got the news that, that she was terminally ill with cancer. And the, the doctor said to her, um, you can live relatively pain-free till the very end, even without any chemo treatments, but you only have about six months. If you decide to take chemo, it may give you an extra year. And as she's contemplating these things, she says, and, and, and she was alone. Her, her husband was no longer in the picture. She knew that when she was gone, her children would be left on their own. And so she said she made a decision that she was going to go through chemo, even though it was going to mean she might have times of being miserable, times of suffering, but if it was going to give her an extra year, she was willing to, to be there for her children. She made this statement. She said, she said, what if in the space of that year I have an opportunity to minister to my children? What if in that one year they're, they're really lonely or they're hurting? And I'm the only one that can comfort them. And she said, so she, she made this decision. I'm willing to go through a lot of hardship if it's going to give me one more year. And I was, I was thinking about that and thinking about how, how when people are terminally ill, um, you know, some people turn inward and, and maybe turn to, to drugs or alcohol abuse or, or something to try to numb the pain and forget what they're going through. But others 
Um, it's almost like their roots go down deeper and, and the love for humanity comes out in their desire to be a blessing while they yet have time. And so Jesus does this too. He, he knows his hours are almost up. His time is drawing near. Instead of focusing on himself, instead of asking people to pour love upon himself or to pity him for the way of the cross, the last hours of his life continue to be others-focused. They're not, they're not self-focused. And so he prepares his followers for the time when he's about to depart. It says he loved them till the very end. And, and he puts their needs ahead of his own. In verse 2 of John 13, um, there we read this. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. In this uh, scripture passage here, Jesus says, first he gives them an example. And then he says this, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example. <clears throat> you also should do just as I have done to you. I want you to consider something. The very men who were about to forsake him, who were about to deny him and abandon him, he bends down and he takes their feet and he washes them. It says here, having loved them, he loved them to the very end. 
knowing their hearts, knowing their, their betrayal, how deceitful they were. And he takes their feet and he proceeds to wash them. And he says, consider what I have done to you. I've given you an example. You also should do just as I have done to you. This is, a, this is an amazing thought. And again, this is hours before he's about to depart and, and, and be cruelly nailed to the cross to give his life. He spends his remaining moments not focused on himself but on ministering to these men, these pillars of the church that God was going to use to start a movement that would change the course of history. You know, I think sometimes we get caught up in the, in the details of this, and I don't think that Jesus was telling us that, that physically we need to, to go from pew to pew and wash each other's feet. Um, but what I do think he meant is that sometimes we only minister to those who minister to us. Sometimes we only consider demonstrating love and kindness to those whom we really care about, who we really treasure. And I wonder sometimes how many of us would be willing to wash the feet, figuratively, of our brother or sister who has violated us, who has wronged us, who has said something about us that didn't feel very good, that may have hurt and yet you see Jesus putting all of those things aside and taking the feet of these men who were about to betray him and abandon him. And he washes their feet. And then he says this. He says, I've given you an example. This is what you ought to do. And I wonder sometimes, how, how willing are we to listen to our Savior? When we see the love that Christ had for humanity, how willing are we to look at our fellow man, especially those who may have violated us, and demonstrate to them the kindness of our Savior? In verse 21 of this passage here, it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, What you are doing, do, and do it quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, 
buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he immediately went out, and it was night. I was just caught up in this thought as I was meditating on this. Why was Jesus troubled in his spirit? He's sitting at this feast with his family, his closest people. Remember there was a time when, when uh, his disciples went to get his attention and they said, hey, your, your immediate family is here. And Jesus makes a statement and he says, who's my family? You know, these men that he had fasted over and prayed over an entire night before he goes and chooses them to be his followers. These men who he had, who he had carefully chosen from the, the, the face of all humanity. This was his family. He was sitting, having a Passover feast with the, the brothers that he loved, the family that he loved, those who were closest to him. And I, I don't know exactly, we don't know exactly what troubled his spirit, but we know that even as these Gospels were written, the Gospel writers understood, and John who was there, Peter who was there, testified of these things, that Jesus was troubled. He was troubled in his spirit. After he washes their feet, after he, he gives them an example of love, he's troubled in his spirit. And I wonder if it's not because as he considers these men whom he has carefully chosen. And he looks at Judas, perhaps, and recognizes here's a man who was there when the eyes of the blind were open. Who was there when the lame began to walk? Who was there when those who were demon-possessed received freedom? Judas was there. And, and I wonder if he was troubled because here was a man who had seen the amazing works that Jesus had performed in his earthly ministry through the power of God and yet did not believe in him, yet chose to betray him, yet was willing to choose material gain, even 30 pieces of silver, over the love of the Savior. And I wonder what it must have been like as Jesus stoops down and takes the feet of Jesus, uh, of, of, of Judas, and, and takes these, these feet that are about to walk towards betrayal. And yet he, he takes these feet and lovingly washes them, regardless of the intent of this man. You know, there's a thought that came to my mind as I was studying this as well. Um, Jesus could have exposed Judas. Notice that? What if Jesus would have, in, the, in this setting where they're together, what if he would have said, one of you will betray me, and it's this man right here, Judas. He's already made a deal with the enemy. And I, as I think of the heart of Jesus, it amazes me 
that in love he contemplates this man. And he doesn't, he doesn't throw him under the bus. He doesn't expose him. He practices kindness and consideration. And I was just thinking, how different aren't we sometimes when we make little snide remarks about people we don't like? When somebody has maybe said something negative about us, made up a story, maybe has gossiped, how often aren't we willing to say something underhanded maybe even about somebody so that they're, you know, they, they will be trodden under, that they will be um, reduced to some degree in the eyes of our fellow man. Sometimes our jealousy, sometimes our envy of somebody's position or, or their personality, their character, we look at them and we're like, oh, I could never be like them. But you know, when I spend time with my friends, all I have to do is say a few little things about this person and they're going to lose all respect for them. How often don't we do those kinds of things? And I, just looking at, at Jesus here, in this story here, as he knows there's a man here who's already made a deal with the devil. Satan had entered Judas. And yet, Jesus proceeds to, to wash his feet. Jesus proceeds to demonstrate kindness to this man, even kind of giving the indication, not even considering um, about exposing him and, and, and not even allowing the disciples to form an opinion that here was a man that was about to betray him. You know, they, these disciples did not even know. They assumed that Jesus had given Judas some instructions, either about the Passover or about giving some money to the poor. Jesus could have so easily exposed this man. I don't know what they would have done to him. I don't know how they would have treated him. But in his kindness, you see the heart of the Lord. I was reminded of Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, where Jesus says this, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who, who ridicule you and say negative things about you. Instead of developing hatred towards them or treating them in a, in a way that the world treats us as believers, Jesus is like, no, turn the other cheek. Don't, don't hate on them. Don't see how you can pay back to the greatest extent. Love your enemies. Love those who oppose you. Pray for those who persecute you. What if, what if by your act of love, what if you take the feet of these who are your own enemies and you treat them with love and kindness? What if God might change the heart of an individual like this? Verse 31 says, When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Just a brief thought about that. You know, sometimes, even in a church setting, when darkness departs, sweet fellowship begins. Almost the entire ministry of Christ, there was a traitor. There was somebody who could perform all the acts, but in his heart, he did not follow his Savior. And I think it's interesting how Scripture tells us here that when Judas leaves, when, when this person with this hidden agenda was a part of the fellowship, when he was gone, then Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. You ever notice that? And I think that's a, an interesting thought. And I think sometimes we should ask ourselves this. Am I one of these? And in, in uh, Romans chapter 16, Paul says, says, there's people in your midst who cause divisions. Mark those kinds of people and avoid them. You know, when we have people that, that don't serve Christ and they become a part of the fellowship and their desire is to just promote themselves, they have their own agenda, their own desire for, for something. When that individual is no longer in your midst, sweet fellowship reigns. When that darkness, when that cloud is no longer there, everybody notices it. People notice it. And in church settings, people notice these things. I've noticed it even here in this church. You know, years ago, you know, thinking of, of individuals who had their own agenda, and all of a sudden they're no longer here. And, and you get together and with, with the, the same group of people and, and the darkness seems to be gone. And all of a sudden there's sweet fellowship. And, and so even, even here, in this instance here, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now this, this individual was no longer pervading their fellowship there. Invading. In verse 33... Jesus says this, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Jesus was, again, he was preparing his followers. He was letting them know, my, my death is, is drawing near. And so he was telling them, when I am gone, let the pathway of love continue. Why do you think Jesus was intent on telling them this? Hours before his departure. And I wonder if it wasn't because they could have been tempted to blame each other, to accuse each other to get on each other's case that they hadn't defended him, that they had all abandoned him, that men like Peter denied him, men like Judas betrayed him. So Jesus says this, hey, when I'm gone, don't depart from this path of love. Just as I have loved you, just as I have 
stooped down and washed the feet of those who were not deserving to have their feet washed. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Love one another. And then he says this statement, he says, All people will know that you are my disciples if you hate one another. That's not what he says, right? He says, All people will know you are my disciples when they see your love in action. When they see the love that you have for one another. When, you know, what is, what is true love? It, it works it, itself out so beautifully when you give love to somebody who doesn't deserve it. And that's, that's the message of the cross. That's the story of the gospel. Jesus giving his life to mankind, to a people who didn't deserve it, while we were yet sinners. Romans 5.8 tells us that Christ came and died for us. So he says this, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Let the pathway of love continue. In verse 36, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Even in this illustration, you see the heart of our Savior. You see Peter who, who seemed to think that he was committed to the cross, who seemed to think he was committed to his Savior. And he, he affirms his love to Jesus. He says, Lord, I'm, I want to go where you go. And Jesus says, no, you're, you're not going to go there yet. And Peter says, Lord, why, why can't I follow you there now? I'll, li I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus understood the heart of Peter. Jesus knew that something had to happen in his life. Jesus knew that the Holy Spirit had yet not filled this man. Pentecost hadn't come yet. That Peter was still lacking. And this is, this is a beautiful thought here. So Jesus, in love, he looks at Peter and he gives him the truth. And he says, Peter, you know what's going to happen? You're going to deny me. Three times. Three times you're going to deny me. Three times you're going to have an opportunity to stand with me. Even to follow me. But you're not going to. Because you still care more about self-preservation. You're not willing yet to truly follow me in the path that I'm going. And I was thinking about Jesus' response here. And I was thinking... How often don't we get caught up in the way of our culture, our world, and we start following those things, um, the, the philosophy of our world who says, um, isn't true love acceptance? Isn't true love confirming? And Jesus demonstrates something very differently. He says, no, sometimes true love means Telling somebody the truth, even if it hurts. Sometimes true love is, is taking somebody and saying, no, actually, the direction you're going 
is not a Christian way. The direction you're going is not following the Jesus I read about in Scripture. And, and the world and the masses and the culture around you will say, Oh, you hate me. Shouldn't you confirm my lifestyle? Shouldn't you just accept me? I mean, if you accepted me, wouldn't it demonstrate the greatest love? And, and the Christian says no. The Christian says, the greatest love is speaking to you the truth. The greatest love is willing to say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. That's, that's love. Love says, you're about to be destroyed. Love says, you're, you're heading towards destruction. Let me speak truth into your life. And it may hurt. Maybe difficult. But I love you so much, I don't want to see you destroyed. I love you so much that I'm willing to, even for a short time, cause you to resent me. Because I know that if you see the truth, the truth will set you free. And you'll find Jesus. You know, Jesus confronts Peter. And he demonstrates and gives them an opportunity even. It says, hey, you know what? This is what's going to happen. You're going to have an opportunity to follow me. But the fact of the matter is you won't. You're not ready yet. You're going to deny me. I just want to share a few closing thoughts as I wrap up the service here for today. In John chapter 16, um, just a few illustrations here that go back to showing the heart of the Savior. In John 16, verse 4, Jesus, as he's sharing the end of his life here with his disciples, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. Why did Jesus not give them all the information. It says here that I didn't say these things to you from the beginning. I have said these things to you. In verse 6 he says, sorrow has filled your heart. But he says, I still have many things to say to you in verse 12, but you cannot bear them now. I'd love to be able to share with you everything that I possibly could. But he says to his disciples, you can't bear them now. And then he reveals an amazing truth. And he shows his heart. And I want you to see this. Jesus was willing to let go of his earthly ministry because he recognized the need of the Holy Spirit to come into this world. And he, he makes the statement, he says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. Well, what does that mean? 
Jesus recognized that his earthly ministry was restricted geographically to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the surrounding territory. And the ministry of God was to reconcile mankind in the entire world. So Jesus and the Father, as they're working on salvation's plan for mankind, they knew that part of the plan would mean that Jesus would go to Calvary and he would give his life and he would die and he would ascend to the Father. And while he was there, then the fulfillment could come. Then the Holy Spirit could come down and fill believers. And it could have an amazing impact. And I love the heart of Jesus here. Jesus could have carried on in his earthly ministry. I mean, we read that he could have called 12 legions of angels. What if he had made a decision, you know, I'm just going to set up my kingdom here. He yielded himself to the Father's will. He was willing to, to reduce himself, to take the focus off of himself um, when, when it came to the, the work of the Holy Spirit. He was willing to remove himself from the earth so that the Holy Spirit could come and do his fulfilling work on the earth. The heart of our Savior was always how can I bless people the most? How can I make the most impact on other people? It was never a self-focused viewpoint. And he demonstrated that so beautifully in John chapter 13 when he washes the feet even of those who are about to betray him. In John chapter 3, verse 27, um, John the Baptist makes a similar statement in a view that Jesus gives here. And in this chapter, John the Baptist had come upon the scene as a forerunner to Christ. He had many disciples and a big following. Well, there, there came a day where the disciples of John started to dwindle. The followers of John started to dwindle. And the disciples of John came to him one day and said, Hey, we're losing everybody. They're all getting away. They're all following this man, Jesus. And John makes a fantastic statement there. He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist, he looks at Jesus' ministry and he recognizes his own ministry and he says, my ministry is coming to a close. I've done the work that God called me to do. Now, the Son of God is here. And yes, I love the fact that people are going to follow him rather than me. He must increase, I must decrease. And it's this idea that Jesus demonstrated. When you look at the heart of the Savior here, he's like, yes, I must 
follow the Father's will to the cross. And if I don't leave here, the Helper won't come. So I need to fulfill this plan so that the Holy Spirit will fall upon the church and that worldwide revival will come. That, that the gospel will impact the entire world. That is the will of the Father in the Son. John the Baptist had that same thought. I've come to fulfill my role. I must decrease. He must increase. You know, when we as children of God understand this replacement principle, it's at that moment that we get to start to understand what humility is. When we think that we are invincible, when we think that the world will stop when we, when we go from here, we have the wrong attitude. We must come to a place inwardly where we come to this conclusion, if I were to expire here, everything will continue. And I've thought of that even for myself here. I thought, you know, there's going to come a day where God's going to raise up other pastors in the church here. And, and there may come a day where the Lord says to me, you know, you've done what I asked you to do. I have somebody else that can take the church further. That I can, that I can use to a greater degree. And I hope that in a moment like that, that the grace of God, by, by the grace of God, I'll recognize that. And I'll, I'll be willing to step aside. Or, or else God will take me out of here. And I know that's a real possibility too. That there's going to come a day where I won't be here. But you know what I know? I'm not in charge of this church. God is. And when I'm gone, people might mourn for a short little while and somebody else will be in place and probably do a better job than I'm doing. It's, it, that's replacement. That's the replacement principle. We, we, every single one of us needs to come to this place in our life. And Jesus demonstrated that. Demonstrated it so beautifully when he said, hey, I have a calling upon my life. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to fulfill that and the helper is going to come. John the Baptist understood it. He said, I've finished my ministry. I must decrease and he must increase. This is the heart of our Savior. <clears throat> John 16, verse 16 Jesus says this, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish, Jesus says, for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, Jesus says, you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And Jesus, again, he was walking his disciples through the stages of grief. And some of you here have, have lost loved ones and you know what he's talking about. And Jesus was saying here, you know, there's coming a time very soon. My, my hours are almost over. And he says, you're going to mourn. The world's going to rejoice. They're going to think they have dealt with, with that plague that was bothering them. But you're going to mourn. But think of it like a woman who gives birth. You know, she goes through this, this turmoil of bringing a baby into the world. And when this little baby's born and she's holding this little baby, all the anguish that she has gone through is forgotten. He says, this, this is the way it is for us. You're going to experience sorrow at my death. But guess what? There's something coming after death, which is going to cause you to forget all of those things. Going to cause you to forget all of those things. After Calvary, after all the, the sorrow and the travail, guess what comes after that? Resurrection Sunday. Keep your eyes on that. Keep your, your mind fixed on those things. You know, when, when all of these things happen and I'm no longer here, don't beat yourselves up. Don't think that, that everything's over. Follow the pathway of love. Continue seeing and doing the example that you've seen in me. And know that good times are coming. Know that joy is on its way. And then the last part of that, verse 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. And you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What, what was Jesus saying here? As he shares with them this, this thought here, this final thought in John 16, he says, hey, there, there's an hour coming. And, and you remember this scene that's about to occur in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas coming in his betrayal with the temple guard and ready to arrest him with their, with their weaponry. And Jesus says this, you will be scattered at that moment. At that moment of betrayal, you will be scattered, each to his own home. And then he says this, you will leave me alone. And as you read the scene that happens there in the garden, you see them all fleeing. And even there's a young man who runs away naked, leaving his garment behind him in his fear. This this scene of abandonment in the garden. And I believe this is what Jesus was talking about. And he wants them to remember. You know, at that moment, when you stop and reflect, I believe this is what he would have said to them. He wanted them to think, when you stop and remember that you've abandoned me, that you have forsaken me, you left me all alone. And, and the guilt um, comes upon you like a flood. 
and you feel like the worst possible human being, like this wretched person, he says, remember I am not alone. The Father is with me, even in those moments. Don't, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't go back to the world. Remember, they were tempted to do this. They, were, they had left behind the trade of fishing. And they even went as far as to, to go back to their occupation. And Jesus says this. He says, remember that in me you have peace. In me you have peace. Don't allow guilt to, to so overcome you because of your abandonment that you forget about the peace that I give you. And so he says this, this to them. He says, you can turn back to the world now. After your abandonment. After your betrayal of me. But he says, it's there that you'll have tribulation. You're going to recognize the suffering that comes from that direction. Turn back to me. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. You don't need to go back to the, the weak and beggarly elements of this world. Go to the one who gives you peace. Don't beat yourself up. Don't, don't sit there and think that the world is over because you have betrayed him. And I, I was just thinking about that. I was thinking, how often aren't we discouraged by how we treat our Savior? We owe everything to Jesus. And sometimes we allow our flesh or the enemy to trip us up. And we beat ourselves up. And sometimes we're, we may have this thought, you know, it's no use. I can't serve Christ. I can't follow Him. I had opportunities, but I just denied Him. And I left Jesus alone there. And I went my own way. And Jesus says, don't, don't do that. Where do you have peace? In Him. Recognize that in Him you have peace. Don't turn back to the world. Proverbs says, like a dog returning to its vomit. Those things, you've already been there. You already know those things don't satisfy you. You already know those things don't help you. They don't give you peace. They rob you of peace. So Jesus says, remember that I've overcome those things. I have overcome the world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a prisoner in a Soviet prison in Siberia. He became so weak and discouraged while he was in this prison that he wished he would die. The guards would beat and usually kill anyone that stopped working. So he made a decision one day that he would stop working so that the guards would kill him. As soon as he was ready to give up, another Christian drew a cross where Alexander could see it. Later on he said, this cross so encouraged him because he realized that God was the one who gave hope and courage, and he decided that he would continue to go on. This was too much for him to give up. And I, as I was thinking about that, even looking at the cross and thinking, you know, this symbol of death in the Roman era, to us is something way different. When we look at the cross, we see the heart of our Savior. We see the one who has overcome the world. And I just want to encourage you. When you feel like the disciples and you realize that this Jesus loves you and has abandoned himself for you, don't lose hope. Remember Romans 8? He says nothing 
will be able to separate you from His love. Nothing. Nothing will be able to separate you from His love. And so you ought never to get to a point where you're like, you know, it's no use. I'm just going just to give up. Look, look at the cross. Look at the cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. May that be our testimony. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, thank you, Lord, for the heart of our Savior. Lord, as he made his way to his final destination on the earth, Lord, he knew he was about to experience a horrible event such as no man has ever experienced. And so, Lord, he was willing to love others, willing to accommodate them, to bring them through the process of grief even, not expose them when they deserve to be exposed. He loved them, Lord, to the very end. It's this Jesus whom we serve, who we cry out to now, who is advocating for us at the right hand of the throne of God. And Lord, I want to bring before you each person here. And I'd ask, Lord, that you would advocate. Because the enemy has blinded, the enemy has brought destruction in so many areas. Lord, our own self has destroyed us, our own fleshly desires, Lord, have often brought us to this place, Lord, where we're so filled with guilt and shame that we have forgotten about the love of our Savior. And so, Lord, I just pray for each person here. Guide them, Lord, even in this moment, Father. Each person that may be listening, Father, we ask that You would give them the strength and the courage to turn to the cross. To look at their Savior and realize there's one who can give them peace. There's one who has overcome the world. Father, may they not turn back to the things of this life and this world. Lord, I pray that each person here would grasp some hope, would recognize that there's a future, there's an opportunity, there's a place of peace. And it's found in the arms of the Savior. Father, may we cherish the old rugged cross, Lord. May we cherish the one who gave his life on it. Lord, may we never give in. May we grow in our faith. May we trust you more. May we become more like you, Lord, in your example of kindness and love. As the days go by, Lord, we, we also believe that our hours are drawing to a close on this earth. Father, may we practice what you practice. May we love our enemies the way you demonstrated it, Lord. Fill us, Lord, with your Spirit. May we just be an instrument in your hands 
in the remaining hours of this earth before it's brought to judgment, Lord. Help us to be like you. 